In the beginning, there was darkness, and God created light. We saw his face illuminated, and we knew him. But then, as sin entered our hearts, we turned from him and plunged ourselves back into darkness. Our view of God grew dimmer and dimmer as we fled further away. We lost sight of his true character. The God we once saw shining bright in majesty became hidden from us by the lies we surrounded ourselves with. But even in the darkness, our God is in control. Even through our questioning, our God is ruler over creation and unchanging amidst our confusion. He is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, infinite in understanding. And we are blessed when we seek his face. Our love is deeper when we know the God of eternal love. Our worship is sweeter when we recognize the holiness of the author of life itself, when the lies and the mystery fall away. We know the truth about God. She was born into a life of privilege. The granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, who was a media mogul at that time, Patty Hearst had her life laid out for her. Things were going to go well for her. She was going to step into that industry and then on a really bad day. February 4th, 1974, members of a domestic terrorist group called the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, kicked down her door, beat up her fiancé, and kidnapped her, holding her for ransom for millions of dollars. She would be locked in a closet where she would be pulled out occasionally to be beaten and raped and beaten and raped. Eventually, she would take a bizarre twist in life, and she would join the SLA. She would end up uh, being part of bank robberies. She would make propaganda tapes for people to join the SLA, speaking out against her family, speaking out against her country. She would finally be captured in, in the fall of 1975. She would claim that she was brainwashed, and the, the trial would be just as bizarre as the entire case that the FBI tried to solve. She would be sentenced to 35 years in prison, but she'd only serve a handful of months. Under President Jimmy Carter, she would get a, a partial pardon, and then a few administrations later, under President Clinton, she would get a full pardon. Why do I share this story with you? Folks, Patty Hearst, at some point in her captivity, began identifying with her abusers. The human heart has the tendency to go to bases of power, places in which we can have power over others or have, have something have power over over us. It's a reason why so often people who are abused often become abusers. It's the reason why so often kids who are bullied end up being the ones who bully other kids. The human heart has the tendency to wonder, and it can wander to places of power, from people to success, from politics to sexuality. And what we have to ask ourselves is this, what has supremacy in my life that gives me identity? Because all of those places are places of supremacy, such as what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this, God demands his authority and supremacy. 
God demands his authority and supremacy. We're going to find out today that Jesus is God, that Jesus is supreme in anything we add to Jesus in our lives. As we talk about this thing called idolatry, anything that we add will strangle us. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week three of our series called The Truth About God. It's in this series in which we're looking at attributes of God. Attributes, they're things that are ascribed to God that are revealed by God. First week, Pastor Bob kicked us off, and he laid out our multi-week series. He covered a lot of those attributes that we're going to be covering throughout the series that'll go all the way through Easter. Last week, Pastor Brian did a fantastic job talking about what we call the omnis of God. God is all-powerful, He's all-present, He's all-knowing. This week, I get the honor and pleasure to talk about the supremacy of Christ in our lives and what that looks like. We're going to be hanging out in two chunks of Scripture. Chunk number one comes out of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, very popular passage that we're going to be looking at. Then we're going to fast forward over to the book of Colossians and look at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So let's kick it off first with Exodus chapter 20. Turn in your Bibles and let me set the scene for what's going on there. Always go back with me 2,000 years. The most important event in history, Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. Keep on going back another 1,500 years, and we find the Hebrew nation enslaved by Egypt. And we know the story. The people are screaming, you know, God, save us, God, save us, get us out of this slavery. For 400 years, they've been slaves. And God, through Moses, squelches Pharaoh, and he takes them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. God would have to form a nation, And to form that nation, he gave them three sets of laws. The first set of law is civil law, so they could learn how to work together. The second set of law is ceremonial law, so they would know how to worship God. And then last but not least, he gave them the moral law. The moral law we know roughly as the Ten Commandments. The first four of those Ten Commandments are all God-focused. And then the last six are more people-focused. It it replicates what Jesus said, the, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love each other and treat each other like we want to be loved and treated. So God gives them the Ten Commandments, and and with those Ten Commandments, he emphasizes that he has to have ultimate authority and ultimate supremacy in our lives. Anything else that takes place of God is an idol. So let's look at this, Exodus 20, verses 1 through, through 3. You guys ready to go? All right, here we go. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you underline anything in your Bible, underline slavery, and then underline these next eight words. You shall have no other gods before me. Slavery, idolatry go hand in hand. For 400 years, the the Hebrew nation had been slaves, and they'd been raised around all these little G-gods. They go into the the soon-to-be promised land, outside of the promised land, and they're in the wilderness. All the nations that surround them, little G-gods. And God gives them those eight words, you shall have no other gods before me. He reminds them five times in the Ten Commandments that I am the Lord your God. The reason why is he wanted to make sure they understood, and we understood that they're commandments and not opinions. And he says, you'll have no other gods before me. That phrase is really important. It means in opposition to me. Anything that we have that's the main thing in our life is an idol, and that's in opposition to God. And that's tough for us 
That's tough for us as Americans because we're, we're independent. You know, we, we feel like we, we, we celebrate our independence and we can't be dependent on anything or anyone. But God created us to be dependent upon him and we struggle with that. Someone who doesn't struggle with that is our senior pastor, Pastor Bob. He, he loves Jesus with all he has, but he loves Independence Day too. It's his favorite holiday of the year, which is kind of weird because most holy pastors, you know, they, they like Christmas and Easter the most, but not Pastor Bob. He loves Independence Day. So what I did is I went into the archive and I found a, a video clip of Pastor Bob about, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago celebrating Independence Day. So take a look at this clip. Ginger boy. <laughs> Hashtag Merka. Oh, Pastor Bob. So, so God creates us with this hole in our heart. And our heart, the hole in our heart, he wants, us, he wants us to fill that with Jesus. But he also gives us free will. And we can fill that with any other thing. And, and the issue at hand is we all have a need to worship. We all have a need to worship. We've got that God-sized hole. And we want to worship something. And God says, worship me, choose me. Pick me because I am going to bless you. I'm going to guide you in your life. Don't let anything else become supreme. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit today about idolatry. And I've preached a lot about this before. So a lot of this is going to be a, a, a review for us. But I want to go through some of those things that can take uh, precedence in our lives, that can become supreme in our lives. So let's, let's go through some of these. Let's talk first about our careers. We are wired to work. God wired us to work. Work is a good thing. Through work, we get to interact with others. We get to change the world in, in a whole bunch of different ways. We get to reflect God in the workplace. It's a, it's a calling, and that's a great thing. Work becomes an issue, an idol, when we say, if I don't have that job, I'm going to die. If I don't have success in that job, I am nobody. When we get our value and our worth from our work instead of from Jesus, it becomes an idol, and that can be an issue. An idol is when we deify something. We make it a God, and we can do that in things like marriage. If you're single here, we are so glad you're here, and we are glad you are with us. Some of you want to remain single your, the rest of your lives, and that's a great thing. I think we, the church, put a lot of pressure on, on people to get married, for those of you who are single, and, and you may feel that pressure, I'm sorry if you ever feel that here. We don't, we don't ever want to do that. You get pressure from your parents or your grandparents. When are you going to get married? I want to have children. I want to have grandchildren. My biological clock is ticking. When are you going to move out of my house? And so we can push you to want to get married. But here's the thing. If some of you do want to get married, and that's a great thing. The issue happens when you say, I am no one if I don't have a spouse. I get my value or my worth out of being the spouse of someone. And that's an issue. That is when marriage becomes an idol. A few weeks ago, I closed out our series on finances, and I talked about this thing called money, about how money is a great servant but a terrible, terrible master. And that's what, what happens with money. That Money is not evil. It's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. And God says, you got to choose between me or money because you can't choose both. You can't have both. You got to choose one or the other. And, and money can become an idol if we let it. So money can be an idol. We deify it. 
Uh, we're going to talk about people later today, but we can worship our kids, our grandkids. We can worship even pastors. So we're going to save that for later. We're going to talk more about that. Last but not least, we can, and there are so many other things that, that are idols, but one more is just our sexuality. We can say, I have to have that physical intimacy in my life or I will die. And all the, the, the teenagers said, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> we can say, I, this is my identity and I've got to live this out or I will die. I'm nobody if I don't get to live this out. And God's saying, no, 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 let, let me be your identity. Anything, anything that we add to Jesus is going to strangle us when it comes to the most important thing in life, because we all have a need for worship. And we know what happens when that idol implodes, we get anxiety and we get stress. An idol is something that has your heart so much that it has the power to bless you or it has the power to curse you. We all have a need for worship. Ask yourself this question, what is it, what person or thing has occupied that God space in my heart that really only Jesus deserves? So God continues on this in his direction, verse four. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, likeness is a substitute of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. An idol is a substitute for God. So Back in third grade, I went to Blue Springs Elementary School, and I was a goofy kid. Imagine that. I, I had like this, this haircut that was, looked like a football helmet. It was the 70s. Cut me some slack. I, I had buck teeth. I had a Forrest Gump brace. I had ADHD, so I was always squirrely, and I was always getting in trouble. And then third grade, the best thing happened in my life. In walked the love of my life, my first crush, Mrs. Lovegreen our teacher. Mrs. Lovegreen was a bomb diggity. She had just graduated college. She was beautiful. And you could have the worst day ever, and she would know what to say. Let me give you an example. I had just been beaten up once again on the playground, and so I came in and to, to you know, kind of get cleaned up in the bathroom. I turn on the, 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 the sink, and like all the water explodes, and it goes right here in my lap. So now it looks like I've wet myself. And I'm, I'm walking into the classroom, and we're going to go to lunch, so I get my gun smoke lunch box, and I go sit down at lunch by myself, and as I sit down, I open my, my lunch, and sure enough, I had a rogue apple, and the rogue apple turned my peanut butter and grape jelly sandwich into a shroud of purple mist. Not good. The worst thing, though, happened, and I nearly lost it when it destroyed my Twinkie. There's a theological point. Stick with me. So it destroyed my Twinkie. I was ready to ball. And Mrs. Lovegreen came in. I don't know what she said. She just made it right. We were the best behaved third grade class, but then something happened. Mrs. Lovegreen started getting bigger. And the boys in the class were thinking, hey, maybe she needs to get that thigh master going, you know? Maybe she needs to, to, to get, rid of, get rid of the donuts in her life. She was pregnant. And sure enough, she and her husband were going to have a baby. And sure enough, she leaves and we get a substitute. And we were the worst behaved class then in Blue Springs Elementary School because we didn't respect the substitute. I was in Mr. Hubble's office, our principal, the rest of the year. In fact, my, my report card, my mom still has it. It says, Kip has a repertoire of bad taste, bad jokes, and uh, has a problem with behavior. You need to fix this. And they made me a pastor. <laughs> so the point is this. God says, I'm not a substitute. I am the real deal. And you need to respect me. You need to follow me. Follow me, choose me, love me. 
because I've chosen you. Follow me. Let's keep on going. Verses 5 and 6. He says, you shall not worship them idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Underline that, jealous. I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity, that's the sin, of the fathers on the children to their third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness, mercy, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God's jealousy doesn't mean that he envies the God we create, that, that he leans over to Jesus going, boo-hoo, I can't believe they're doing this. That's not what it means. It's a positive term. God's jealousy means that he wants the very best for you and me because he does love us. And because he wants the very best for you and me, he will not tolerate competition. Okay, so you guys are my counselors. You guys are my therapists. I always say when I preach, I preach to myself. So go with me on this because as I was putting this teaching together, God clocked me on this, that I'm guilty as charged. So uh, many of you know I have a grandson. His name is Case. He's amazing. He's soon to be two years old and he's got me wrapped around his finger. Uh, I am his grandpa. He is my little buddy and we do so much stuff together. I, I teach him important things in life like when the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl, first time in 50 years, and, and I'm from Kansas City, and, and I teach him how to do the, the touchdown dance, you know? And, and so, and I teach him how to do this. Real quick side note, for those of you who are San Francisco fans, God still loves you, Jesus loves you, and there's time to repent. We have, we have grief share on Thursday nights. I'm just taking it in, guys, because I'm from Kansas City, okay? Grief share on Thursday nights. Send a tweet to, to Richard Sherman. Maybe he'll show up. Boo-hoo. Okay, so I'm teaching Case. I teach Case how to do the, the touchdown dance. And for those of you who are saying, oh, Kip, he's from Kansas. He'll never be a Washingtonian. Birkenstocks with dark socks. I'm just saying that. <laughs> so I teach him, teach him that. I get to impart this wisdom. In, in our house, things are very important like sports. And so I said to Case, hey, Case, ESPN says Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> See? This kid is wise beyond his years. I've taught him things like ketchup covers a multitude of sins. These are things I've get, I get to teach. So, as I said, I'm putting the sermon together, and God clocked me. Because he said, Kip, you know, um, you've got a gift in your grandson, but you're worshiping the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And I know so many of you parents and grandparents or people with loved ones in your life that can happen to where we, instead of worshiping the gift or the giver, we worship the gift. And God says, you will have no other gods before me. I am a jealous God. He will not tolerate competition. Okay, so we got some great information from the Old Testament, some great information that applies to us in our lives right now out of the book of Exodus. Let's put it in our toolkit, put it in our toolbox, and we can apply that to our lives. What I want to do for the rest of today's teaching is I want to spend time over in the New Testament. Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossae. The church in Colossae is having a hard time. It's called the, the letter to the Colossians. And they're having a hard time, and he needs to set the record straight and let them know Jesus Christ is supreme and has authority in our lives. So the first part of the letter, he starts setting up all of those things. And in verse 14, he says something to the extent of, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul hits it right on the head, verse 15. He starts out, remember, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. 
He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, let's talk about firstborn, then we'll roll over and talk about image. Firstborn. Firstborn does not mean first in birth order. Jesus is not created. He's not the brother of of Lucifer. He is the creator. He's not created. Firstborn means first in importance and first in status. First in importance, first in status. There's biblical precedence for it. Look at Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, they're talking about David's kids. Uh, they, talk, they refer to Solomon. Solomon, the wisest king of all time, earthly king of all time, Solomon is referred to as the firstborn, but he wasn't the firstborn. He had older, older siblings. He was first in importance and first in status. So Jesus is first in importance and first in status. And Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. It, the image, it, it, it means the exact representation and revelation of who God is. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is the creator. He's first in importance, first in status. He is the the exact image, God in the flesh, of the living God. Okay, so let's keep on going because it says Jesus Christ is supreme. How's that? Verse 16. For by him... All things were created both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Not some things, not a few things, but look at this. All things, all things have been created through him and for him. What's cool about this is those last two words, for him, can also be translated as because of him. Because of Jesus, who is supreme, He creates all things, and all things have been created through him, by him, and because of him, and for him. And here's a truth we got to land on that is so important. It's so important to life, life for us as Christ followers, and it's this. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. He is the creator. He's not created. He is God. He is supreme. So I started trying to think how I could pastor explain this, you know, how it would make sense. And I thought, well, probably the best thing to do is to go right to God's word. So I went into the Old Testament and got some uh, messianic sayings of who Jesus is, then into the New Testament to, to get some more of those messianic sayings. There's so many of them, but, but just this kind of will give us an idea uh, that Jesus is God and Jesus is supreme. Go with me on this. He's the alpha, the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the image of the invisible God. He comes from the holy of holies and not the dust and the ground. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. But wait, there's more. He's the advocate, the author, and perfecter of our faith. He's the bread of life, the bridegroom, the beloved son. He's the chief cornerstone, the deliverer, and the good shepherd. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. But wait, there's more. He's the head of the church, the great I am, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is Messiah, the mighty one. He is the risen Lord and he is the rock as in rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Folks, Jesus is God. Jesus is what? Supreme, awesome. But there's still more. He's the son of man. Son of God, Son of the Most High, the resurrection and the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by whom? By Jesus. By Jesus. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. And He calls on us to give Him undivided worship and undivided focus. Anything that we add to Jesus will strangle us. Let's keep on going. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, if you memorize scripture, we hope you do. This is a great memory verse. This is one of my life verses. He is before all things. Remember, first in importance, first in status. And he holds all things together. Because he's creator, he's before all things. And because he's sustainer, he prevents it from from dissolving into chaos. This world he prevents from spinning out of control. Now, here's something crazy. Here's something crazy to think about. Have you ever considered that God is God-centered? God is God-centered. You know, I want to build on what Pastor Bob taught that first week. He said, God doesn't need anything. He's God. He doesn't need us. He's God. God is God-centered. Think about this. First of all, you may be saying, whoa, 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 wait a second, Kevin. God is God-centered. You've stood up here on this platform so many times, and you've said, if I were the last person on the face of the earth, that Jesus would come and he would die for me, and that's true. He does it out of his love. For God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But we, we make ourselves idols when we think God is me-centered or you-centered. God is God-centered. And that's a good thing because he gives us answers to two of the most important questions in life. Does my life matter? And why am I here? Does my life matter? Absolutely your life matters. If you're thinking about putting a Glock in your mouth tonight, don't do it because you matter. God created you. He created you out of love. Your life matters. And what are we created for? He created the moon to reflect the sun. And for all of us, we got to be like little moons to reflect the S-O-N in all we do. We do that by loving God with all we have and loving each other dearly. What happens is when we live out those two commandments, we find our purpose in life and we make a difference in our corner of the world. Does your life matter? Absolutely. Why are you here? To live out those two commandments. It's all about worshiping God. The church is here to do a lot of things, but the number one thing the church is here for is to worship God because God is God-centered, not us-centered or me-centered. What's beautiful about this, what I love about this, is that even though God is God-centered, He creates us out of love and He knows everything that's going on in our lives Everything that from the highs and lows to the wins and the worst losses. He knows that deep, dark chamber in your heart that only you have the keys to, that you won't let anybody see and you don't want anybody to see because if they see it, there's shame and their guilt. He knows that and he still loves you and wants to bury and dig into that. Back to verse 17. He is before all things... And in him, all things hold together. He's involved in all of the details of our lives. And what's important about that is, is God is involved in our lives and he keeps it all together when it all seems to be falling apart. You know, when you do that 10, 10, 80 thing that we talked about in the finance series, you tithe 10%, you save 10%, and then you try to live uh, the rest of the month on your, uh, your other 80%, and you're in week two and you're all out of money and your life is spinning out of control. He holds it all together. When you lose that job 
And then you apply for another, and it's a specific skill set, so you know the people who are applying for that other job, and you know you're the one that deserves it, and you don't get it, and your life has fallen apart. He holds it all together. When you step into the door at the end of the day, and you find your spouse in the arms of another person, and your marriage has crashed on the floor, he holds it all together. It's the political season. Folks, if President Trump is elected or not, and, and whichever side you're for, you go and you're screaming on the pavement going, no, no, guess what? The world is not going to fall apart. He holds it all together. My name is Kip McCormick, and I approve this message. <laughs> when your prodigal son, your prodigal daughter, end up leaving home, and there's famine in the land. And you, as a parent, you are on your knees, and you feel like your, your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Guess what? He holds it all together, and he's doing something. When you get that diagnosis for you or your loved one, and you got to walk through that valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for he is with you. His rod and your staff, they comfort you, and he holds it all together. Folks, he holds it all together when we don't even understand what's going on. We have to understand that the same God that released Peter from, from prison is also the same God that allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded in prison. And we don't get that. But we got to trust him because he is before all things and in him all things hold together we got to trust in that when all things are falling apart. Okay, let's keep on going. Paul continues on the supremacy of Jesus. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So much stuff to unpack here. Let's land on this for a couple minutes. He's the head of the church. Head of the church means he's the source. Jesus is the source. He's the head of the universal church, and guess what he does? Being, being a crazy God who we can't predict, he allows, he allows fallible people to lead his church. And what we can do is we can end up worshiping the leaders of a local church who receive the gift of leadership, who receive the gift of teaching and communication, rather than worshiping the giver of that gift. So as I said, I always have to preach to myself. You guys are my counselors. You are my, my, this is my therapy session, so thanks for this. You'll, uh, I'll send you uh, money later for this. I appreciate it. But go with me on this. So God clocked me on this. It, when, when I was putting this sermon together, he clocked me on it in a crazy way. So... Last week, Linda and I got to go to the Global Leadership Summit launch event down in San Diego. Uh, the, the Global Leadership Network sends out a, an invitation to about 100 senior pastors, uh, executive pastors, pastors in my position that work with the Global Leadership, Leadership Summit. We uh, host it every year uh, here in August. It's a two-day event. You want to get your tickets. It's simply an amazing event. So they do this launch event several months beforehand. So Linda and I got to go down to it. It's led by a guy named Craig Grishel, who's like the head spokesman now for the Global Leadership Summit. Craig Grishel is an amazing leader. He's a, a senior patch, pastor of a very large church. They got campuses all over the world. Rumor has it they're going to open a campus on Mars in a couple weeks. So they're doing a lot of stuff. Craig Rochelle writes a lot of incredible books about, uh, about Christianity, but he does this podcast on leadership stuff. He's amazing. So he's one of my heroes. I got this man crush on him. So uh, he's going to be leading this event. And it's Linda and I and, uh, you know, 100 people in the room with him. So uh, 
he's, he's there, we're starting the, the, the event, and Linda's wise, she said, honey, you've had like 10 cups of coffee today, imagine that, and, and you probably need to you know, hit the bathroom before you come on in. Yeah, that's a good idea. So I go in and I'm doing the men's room thing, so all of us men know, eyes front, you don't talk to anyone, you never shake hands in the bathroom. So I'm doing that, eyes front, and next to me, I see this beak. Craig Rochelle has like this big nose, it's like, it's Craig Rochelle. Okay, eyes front, eyes front. I can't say anything, but I got to say something because it's Craig Rochelle. And I'm like, okay, so I muster up the courage to say something. And it comes out kind of like this. Hi. <laughs> and and he, he kind of looks and then just leaves. And I go out and I said, honey, did you, did you see that's Craig Rochelle? She's like, I know we're with him like for the next two days. And it was cool because we got to spend a lot of time. He imparted a lot of wisdom. Remember, you guys are my counselors. So I get a full hour here. I'm not going to take an hour. So we finish the conference. I take Linda down to the airport and then she gets on a plane and I have to stick around San Diego, sunny and 70 degrees doing God's work. Somebody had to do it, God chose me. So part of my job there was to go around to some other churches, a specific one is North Coast Church. North Coast Church is doing amazing things and, and they're doing some things that we're gonna try to emulate here at Cornwall Church. So I'm walking around, I'm talking to the staff and everything and it's Sunday and I get to meet uh, Chris Brown. Chris Brown is the senior pastor of this church. He's one of the greatest communicators in America of God's word. There are three people that have made a huge difference in my preaching. It's Chris Brown, Chuck Swindoll and another guy you don't know named Chuck Stecker. And so those three guys have emulated impact me. So Chris Brown, I'm, I'm there with him. And so he's getting ready to go up on stage. I haven't gotten to, gotten to meet him yet. And the pastor that's walking me around says, Kip, there's Chris. Let's go talk to him. I'm like, dude, he's going up on stage in five minutes and he's going to be preaching to a gajillion people. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his 18th sermon of the day. Don't worry about it. So we put, he pulls me aside and we just start talking. He's like, hey, what's going on at Cornwall? I give him the 30 second elevator speech. And then he says, Kip, if you guys need anything at Cornwall, man, you just let us know. We're for you guys. Ministry's tough. And whatever you need, man, you got my email. Shoot me an email. I'm just so glad to get to meet you. And so he's really humble and everything. So we wrap up the day, learned a whole lot, taking a lot of things that we can bring back here. And I get in my car and I'm driving and I'm just praising God. I'm like, God, this is so cool. I got to meet Craig this week. I got to meet Chris. This has been a great week. And it was like one of those God presence moments, you know, like the Jesus take the wheel. But it, okay, it wasn't like that. But it was the Holy Spirit just clocking me saying, hey man, you really like those two pastors. I've given them a gift, the gift of communication, but you're worshiping the recipient of the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And oh, by the way, um, you like to preach and you like to write, you know, that gift of communication. I think you, you like that a lot of times more than you love me. Oh man, I had to repent. I had to stop and repent and just say, God, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm messed up in that. Guys, God spoke through a donkey 3,000 years ago. He can speak through anyone. And we get into a bad place when we start worshiping people on platforms instead of the one who gives them the gift and, and is the head of all platforms, Jesus. Okay, so back to Paul. Paul reiterates that Jesus 
is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Remember, firstborn means first in importance, first in status. There had been several resurrections before Jesus, but Jesus' resurrection is the most important resurrection. That's where he takes on our sin, dies buried, and is resurrected. It is what we hang our hat on here at, at Cornwall Church. It's what we hang our hat on for all of Christianity. The most important event is that resurrection. Otherwise, our faith is meaningless. So I went back to verse 18, and I like looking at different versions of it. Look at this in, in uh, the New King James Version, and look at this last word, because he talks about Jesus has, has to have first place in everything. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, he may have the preeminence. This is the only time that this word is used in this context in the New Testament, preeminence. It means first place. It means utmost importance. It means supremacy. Later, Paul would write, Christ is all and is in all. And get this, it was God's purpose. It was his purpose to make his son Jesus the creator, sustainer, and the head of the church. God knew he was going to do it from the start. It was his purpose to make Jesus the source. It was God's purpose to make him first and foremost, first in importance, first in purpose. It was his purpose and only through worshiping him can our life have true meaning and purpose. All right, verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's talk about this. We're talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you have two parties that are at odds, and there's a root cause of a problem. And so with us, that root cause is sin. God reconciles us to him because he's perfect. We're the ones with the jacked upness in our life. We're the ones that have the sin. So we've got the sin in our life because we have sin in our life. There's no way, way we can have peace with God. Jesus has to go to the cross. When he goes to the cross, now we have a way. He clears the way for us to have that relationship with God to where when he looks at us, when we've received Jesus, he looks us at us and he doesn't see imperfections. He doesn't see the porn that we looked at last night. He doesn't see the, the puppy that we kicked the other day. He doesn't see our anger and the way we flipped off that person that, who cut us off. And we repent of those things. What he sees, though, is Jesus because we are reconciled to him. We're the ones with the stuff in our lives. We don't reconcile God to us. That would mean God is, is us-centered. We are reconciled to him because he is perfect. Jesus is the leader of all things. Jesus is the peacemaker in all things. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. But here's the issue at hand. The main obstacle for us to understand that Jesus is God, that Jesus is supreme, that God demands his authority, that God demands his, his supremacy in life is idolatry. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. It came out in 1980. It's about two runners from the UK, not the University of Kentucky, but the United Kingdom. And, and it's a, the story of this guy named Eric Little and this other guy named Harold Abrams. Eric Little is a, a phenomenal runner and a devout Christian. He had been a missionary all of his life in China. Uh, spoiler alert, he would end up winning a gold medal, and then he'd go back to China, and he would die in a prison camp 
a Japanese prison camp during World War II. He loved the Lord with everything he had. And at one point, his sister says, listen, your running is out of control because you love running more than you love Jesus. And he said, no, I'm not. I, God created me to, to worship him. But when I run, I feel his freedom. I feel his love. And then after he would run, every meet he would host these huge rallies and people would come to Christ, people who would never want to come into a church. So he worshiped the giver. He didn't worship the gift. Then there's Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams, one of the fastest men on the planet in 1924, he, 100-yard dash was his run. And he said these words to the coach, spoiler, spoiler alert, before he won the gold medal. He said, I'm forever in pursuit and don't even know what I'm chasing. I have 10 seconds, 10 seconds to justify my existence. I'm forever in pursuit. I don't know what I'm chasing. For him, he was nobody if he didn't get that gold medal. He's forever in pursuit and he doesn't know what he's chasing. Does that sound like you right now? Right now, are you running in circles, chasing something? You're trying to fill that space in your heart with something other than Jesus. Folks, if it's anything other than Jesus, it will strangle you. He gives you purpose. He gives you meaning in your life. And guess what? When you receive Jesus, your life doesn't get any easier. I'd say it gets a lot harder. But he gives you that hope. And he gives you that strength to fight the good fight of faith. Back to Exodus. Then God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Slavery. And God says slavery because these next eight words, you shall have no other gods before me. If you add anything plus Jesus in your life, it's not going to work. It's not going to come out right. Only Jesus can fill that God hole. And so what I want you to do as we close today, I want to give you a challenge. And here's the challenge. The challenge is very straightforward. Examine your heart. Simply examine your heart. Ask God to show you. Lock yourself in a closet with some coffee and, and shut off your phone. Tie the kids up. I don't know what you got to do. Just... Sit down with God with no distractions and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. You're in my life. I need you to show me what's taking priority. Let me give you three questions to ask yourself that'll help you. That's not in your link. It's, it's old school. You got to write them down. But here are three questions to help you identify what could be an idol in your life. First of all, what is it that causes you anxiety or depression? What causes anxiety or depression? I've talked about my problems with anxiety, uh, the PTSD I've gone through, and so often with anxiety, it's a lack of control. You can't control things, and your idol starts imploding, and, and you, you get anxious or you get depression. What in my life is causing anxiety or depression? Second question, what do I dread most in life? What do I fear the most? Is it the loss of a child? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a loss of a spouse? Is it never being married? Is it uh, losing my job and being homeless? What is it? Whatever it is, ask yourself this question. Spend time in prayer and ask God that. Show me what is it that I dread most in life. And then last but not least, what do I think about all day? What preoccupies my mind all day? What's the last thing I think of when I go to bed and the first thing that comes to mind when I get up? And that might guide you to what that idol is, but guess what? When that happens, when God shows you what it is, and folks, I have to do this every day. I have to surrender the idols that, that I, I clamor to. You have to surrender it. 
and you have to repent. Repent means turning away from your sin because idolatry is sin. You may have to go to some people you've harmed because as a workaholic, you've neglected your family. Or as someone who has wanted this this people-pleasing thing, you've had this people-pleasing in your life, maybe you've pushed honesty and integrity and you've got to go back and fix that. I don't know. But you've got to surrender it every day. God demands his authority and his supremacy in our lives. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. We all have a need for worship, and whatever we worship, if it's anything other than Jesus, it will strangle us.